Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. So we're going to be covering uh, Numbers chapter 19 through 21. And you can find all the notes that we've done on this particular passage over the years at halal.info slash P for parasha or P for portion, P39. So halal.info slash P39. You can find all the notes that we've done on that particular passage uh, down through time. Pamela, you have your hand raised. Okay. Yes. I wanted to comment on the snake. Um, Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and they had to look at it if they wanted to live uh, from the snake bite. And, and he was having a hard time with leadership. They had to comply with his leadership command or they would die. Correct. Yep. That is indeed a key point of what we're talking about here today. So I guess I'm done. All right. That is the entire Parsha in a nutshell there about questioning leadership. And that's pretty much what all these seemingly disjointed accounts that we're looking at here today are about, about death and about life. And your choice is, well, which kingdom do you want to live as a part of? Do you want to live as a part of the kingdom of death or part of the kingdom of life? And, well, I don't know. Some people actually obsess and uh, get excited about the kingdom of death because they see that as the source of power to destroy, to take down, to blow things up, both literally and figuratively, metaphorically and systematically, blow things up, get in, cause chaos. Because out of, out of the ashes of chaos, then you will have Revolution, you will have reformation. These are the things that we're being swept up today. So today, it's very much the same sort of um, battle against the kingdom of death and against the kingdom of life as it has always been from the garden, which amazingly had a snake in it. And we're talking about a snake here today. So snakes, snakes, snakes. So I guess instead of snakes on a plane, you could say snakes on a journey is probably the, the good description of this particular passage. Snake on a stake. Yes. <laughs> yes, uh, Rose, uh, you have a comment. I just wonder how are we supposed to uh, respect and look up to the snakes of today? Respect the snakes. Like who's in authority right now? Yes. Well... See, one of the, one of the things that uh, are, were noted, then we see examples of this that are given through the, the various leaders and prophets we've had about people who have served under snakes of various types. See, you know, Yosef, he could talk about what type of a snake he served under. Well, at least the snake that Yosef served under 
was uh, at least one who acknowledged who God was and acknowledged when there was some sort of superior force he was dealing with, one who could foretell the future. So he basically turned over his whole country over to Yosef uh, and his God. But there are other snakes that the patriarchs and prophets have served under. Daniel served under quite the snake. And um, that is an example of, you know, you could say giving some sort of allegiance, giving some sort of deference, but not to the total aims of it. So, so that is why uh, people will say, you know, they'll, they'll say like uh, Romans chapter 13, well, you know, give, give deference to the authorities because they don't, they don't wield the sword for no reason. Well, again, there's the, the key point. They wield the sword. And uh, one of the founders of our particular country, uh, George Washington, said, government is fire. You probably could say, government is a fiery serpent. And it could as well keep control and keep order as it can cause disorder by whoever is wielding it. If it is let go, if it is released if it is sent out so thus we should always be looking for where the power is what the power is being wielded by because power just destruction is you could say a tool destruction that is purposeful involves a mind to do that you know, that's why we have in our justice system, like the whole thing about, right, intent and various levels of crime and punishment about intent involved with that. That's for a good reason. It's because if there is some intent, if there is a mind behind what sort of malevolence or power or destruction is involved, that is a very dangerous thing to be loose even also if it is just random, if someone has some sort of grand scheme, but if also it's random, where people just say, hey, that looks like a weak person over there, I'm going to go dominate them in whether, whatever way I can, whether it's by ruse or by murder. Yes, Anne? The Lord is talking to me about this this week too because my, my heart has been very hard against our leaders here and uh so he's kind of turned my heart a little bit and said they know not what they do and also it comes to mind you don't know which snake is going to turn around like paul was a snake i mean he was going to kill mm. other people that were uh the way until the lord turned him off the horse and and uh appeared to him and he went blind. We don't know who in our leadership will, and maybe no one, but we never know which one will turn because God is turning the hand of whoever or the heart of whoever. So uh, I, I, I haven't exactly gotten softened towards him, but, <laughs> but, but I keep on saying that they know not what they do, and it softened me to not know what who will turn yes and we don't know who's going to turn but there may be one and and i thank the lord for this week with 
with uh, DeSantis and and Abbott uh, turning, you know, and setting up the border on their own, and and even getting prayer back in the school. Not really prayer, but I mean a minute of silence in in Florida. That's really a very big thing. And uh, that was the Supreme Court, but I don't know. Uh, there's other things that you know look awful, but we have to focus on the good, whatever's coming. That's Hopeful, you know, and those two things were hopeful this week. So, anyway, they know not what they do. They know not what they do. So, one of the the things that we're uh, looking at here today is about also protection against the snakes. And that protection is something that is absolute. So, if the Lord is going to hold back the snakes of the world, the snakes are held back. And if the Lord lets the snakes go, the snakes are released. They will go and do what snakes do. And a key part of what we're looking at today is the heart of the Nahash. The heart of the snake is the red, is the blood. So thus, when we're talking about the kingdom of death the kingdom of life one of those another way to put it is something the apostle paul puts it is the kingdom of the spirit and the kingdom of the flesh yes there's a reason why um red flags i want to we call oh so we put up red flags hitler's nazis red flag the the, the chinese red flag red flag the, the flag being very red is is designed to it's a propaganda tool to make you be afraid hence the red snake it's all it, 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 there's a psychological thing that human beings associate with red as being danger scary mm. uh that the blood that they're associated with those things and it's not not by happenstance not by some random thing oh we happen to think this is just coincidence no it's it's pre-programmed into mm. us to fear that which is red the red flags being raised which is obviously the major <laughs> killers of the world have used red as their dominant color yes but anyway I just want to say what, what keeps me grounded uh, and keeps me away from fear is the fact that the scripture says, says, uh, don't fear man who can only kill your flesh. Mm -hmm. It is best to have that reverent fear of God who can kill both fresh, uh, flesh and soul. So uh, I just look at it this way. Man can only kill me once. <laughs> exactly right. Well, what so about, what about the red heifer then? Though red, it's a red heifer. So yes, and it's a cleansing thing. Yes, I mean, and and we don't have it because the, the I mean, did they really do it? I mean, did they use it? But the priests. Oh yeah. Every time. Yeah, and that you bring up a very good observation is that you have the red with the red heifer, and the red with the blood, the blood that covers, especially on uh, Yom HaKippurim, Day of Atonement, that red that covers, then you have for the ultimate red heifer, the ultimate Day of Atonement, which is in the Mashiach, the ultimate covering of sins, transgressions, and iniquities. So thus, you see that this reversal 
of the kingdom of sin and death comes through the death of one in particular to then bring everyone into the kingdom of life to cover over and remove people from that land, the land of the kingdom of death, which is a big topic of Hebrews chapter 9 when it talks about that this particular blood, the particular blood of the Mashiach is in particular to cleanse you, cleanse your conscience, cleanse your conscience, that thing that is telling you, oh, the thing that is telling you which way to go and also to remind you of what has been and what you have done, that is cleansed away. So the kingdom of life will use a particular death to steer everyone and cleanse everyone from the old way of death to the way of life. Yet, what does the kingdom of death do? Piles on the death. But what is that death that the kingdom of death piles on doing? Causes more death, more guilt, more onto your conscience. But then in the process, it's very sneaky. Because this kingdom of death also tells you that you've got nothing to regret. I have no regrets. You hear lots of people talk about that today. Oh, I have no regrets. No regrets whatsoever. So you sear people over to thinking that, oh, the old way of life, there was nothing wrong with that. There was absolutely nothing wrong with that. All right. So as we continue on here further, just a little reminder about this uh, particular circular chart, the circular flow chart and the interactions when we talk about sins, transgressions, and iniquities. You also have another uh, interconnected picture between the commandments, statutes, and judgments, which is what the topic of this particular section is, you know, of, of the statutes. So the, tip, the different words that we deal with in the Torah are mitzvah for commandment, chuka for statute or an ordinance, and mishpat for judgment, and how all these are connected. So with the, the, the commandment, the mitzvah, that you could think of as the principle. And you ask the question, well, how do I apply this principle? How do I apply the mitzvah to everyday life? Thus comes the chukah, or the statute of the ordinance. That's the application. How you take the mitzvah into everyday life. So then you ask the question from the chukah, and you ask, well, then how do I apply the chukah to a given situation? Then this comes the mishpat, or the judgments, or the, the situational application. We call that today case law. You, you say this is case law to help us understand what the principle and the application is then, how does it apply to a given situation? So that's one of these things that as we go through life, we should be looking to take the principle and the application so then we can take that to any given situation we can come across. 
So then we're just not left out there. Well, you know, what would Yeshua do? <laughs> well, you can have the course around that we have through the word to be able to take through the situation so that when it talks about living in the in the spirit as the apostle paul puts it living in the spirit is is to be able to get down to the mishpat and know what to do in life because you are thinking on the same the same frame as the one who spoke the words every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god if you are moving closer to that image closer to the thoughts of god to understand what these mean and how they apply in life thus then when you get down to a given situation you have a better idea you're working along with your character the way you behave in any given situation is then consistent over time people know what to expect from you because this is your way of life this is the the um you could say the chuka chayim the way the your ordinances for the way you live your life is based upon principles application then down to a given situational application for that so then down to just a quick refresher on the red heifer just so we can connect these little pieces together on the red heifer you see with that in the in the red heifer in chapter 19 of numbers you get the parallels with yom kippur with the day of atonement and you see that the one who is co connected to death and what are the those things that relate to death sins transgressions and iniquities because remember when we were going through leviticus there was offerings and things for unintentional sins as they call them but what offering is there for the awon or the iniquity what was that <laughs> yes the goats yes the goats and one particular goat for yom kippur that is what the offering is but question is just a little refresher on Leviticus chapter 16. Who brings the goat? And ultimately, who's actually handling it? It's the high priest who does that. So that's given you a, a, an indication that this is something that is not, not you that is actually bringing this. You have to have, have faith. You have to have faith in the work of the high priest to take care of that one thing that you cannot do, that stain of the alone, the stain of the iniquity on your conscience, lingering out there, that that is taken care of, and the high priest is faithful to take care of that. So then the parallels you have between the red heifer and Yom HaKippurim and also the Yeshua HaMashiach is reflected there in Hebrews chapter 9, which will be going over here briefly we've done this in times past so just another reminder about what the red heifer is the fact that it's just it's unblemished perfectly red and then there's traditions that have developed on that as to what does perfectly red mean about no hairs uh, next to each other that aren't red even the hooves are red 
And then the tenth red heifer is a harbinger of the final redemption, and people keep looking for the red heifer. And here's a picture from 2020, and they seem like every year they're coming up with a new iteration of that, of one that is a particular candidate. So always lingering on out there as to finding this particular red heifer that's going to suffice. And other things from Numbers 19 that are in the book is about the cedar, the cedar and the hyssop they're burned with the red heifer. Both of those are red, both known for keeping things from getting some bugs into them or larvae, germs, or some sort of contaminant into those. And then the scarlet thread, so more red, red, red. Scarlet thread that was burned with it. So the things that we get from Bible symbolism about red, dirt, you know, Adom, and Adama, dirt, and also Dam, blood, and all those things relate to life as we read back in the book of Vayikra or Leviticus, where it says the life is in the blood. Also see that back in Genesis at the time of the flood. So good precursor of that, Leviticus 17.11 uh, talks about that, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So, I'm going to skip down a little bit to some symbols of atonement. We talked about the parallels between the red heifer and Yom HaKippurim. Got the seven sprinklings of blood for the red heifer in Numbers 19, verse 4 that we read about. Then the seven sprinklings of blood during uh, Yom Kippur found in Leviticus chapter 16 and also reflected previously in Leviticus chapter 4 and uh, chapter 14. And then talking about the red heifer again, the ashes of the red heifer cleanse from contact with the dead. And with uh, Yom HaKippurim, the blood for the goats for the Lord covers sins, transgressions, and iniquities. Seven. What does seven symbolize that we see quite often? Completion. What is... Uh, the Hebrew word for oath. Oath. Shavah. Promise. From seven. So it's one of those things that um, another way to put oath is you can take it to the bank, as they say. So thus, with the seven sprinklings, what is that indication? Since you've seen elsewhere that it is things reaching a completion an oath, a, a deep, sincere promise that it will be done. What, can you, what is that communicating to you about cleansing from contact with the dead and cleansing and covering over sins, transgressions, and iniquities? What should that be telling us? That it works. That it is completed, and it is certain. You can take it to the bank. So this cleansing from death is certain it is done and the covering of your sins transgressions and iniquities is certain that is done so thus that's what you could say when you get to hebrews chapter 9 that is the uh, what's known as the kalva homer or the light and heavy uh, argument so 
in Hebrews chapter 9 is talking about what? The red heifer and the sprinkling of the blood of bulls and goats. So those two, if those two can seven sprinklings cleanse you from contact with death and cleanse you from contact with iniquity, contact of the whole congregation from iniquity, well then, how much more is the offering of the Mashiach going to do just that, to separate us, to move us from death into life, to move us from iniquity into being declared righteous, being declared not guilty, being declared clean. Not because of how good we were before the cleansing, because that's why we needed the cleansing, right? But after the cleansing, that's the great promise of the new covenant promise that we talk about quite often there in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, that your, he will remember our iniquities no more. So, seven, 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 seven. He will remember and no more. So, that's not going to be like, oh, it works now, but just wait next week. Then heaven's going to say, oh, yeah, boy, now we remember about what you did. Yeah, you are a loser. Okay, now I remember. No. The promise of the new covenant is that that loser part of us in the eyes of heaven, that is no more. That is remembered no more. That's no longer counted against us. So that's part of the the great good news of what's promised with the red heifer portion of this. Which is uh, caught up as a passage here we'll take a look at here. It's in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. It goes from 11 through 15. But when the Mashiach appeared as high priest for the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the, of the flesh. That was, remember the call, the light part, which is not light at all. But here comes the heavy part. How much more will the blood of the Mashiach, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. So that is what you say is the good news. So if the light part, which was not light at all, was pretty heavy, if that part about the red heifer and Yom Kippur is, you can take that to the bank by all the words that are communicated with it, well then, how much more is this, which is not offered 
every year. It is the reality, the substance, that the um, symbol, that the memorial of Yom Kippur, the memorial of the red heifer are always pointed to. So every time, you know, you always wonder, well, do this in remembrance of me, which is what the Yeshua said related to Passover. So thus, every time Passover comes along, what you should always be thinking in the back of your head is everything related to the Exodus, that's the Kal. The Chomer is, well, how much more then is the great release from freedom? So not taking the Kal and throwing it out the window, but it is this, okay, you, you accept this. This was fantastic. This is great. Well, then how much more is this on top of that? So takes everything and lifts it all up a, to a higher plane, to a higher level. So then every time that's Pesach, every time Passover comes along, you're thinking, wow, this is going to be a great exodus, great exodus out. And we talked about the first exodus. We talked about the greater exodus, the one that's foretold to be coming. And there have been great exoduses that have happened over time where God has delivered the people of God out of various houses of bondage, call them exiles and returns from the exile. But there is going to be a great return from the exile from the world. So any... Questions or thoughts on that before we go on much further with this? All right. Well, one of the things that uh, we'll be taking a look at here is in Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, we've talked about this in times past, about this uh, curious aspect of water from the rock. Oh, is someone piping up with a question? Just heard someone coming off a mute. Any questions before we move on? Oh, Pamela, yes, go ahead. Yes, please unmute yourself and... Okay. Well, always glad to hear that people are listening. <laughs> yes, I'm just not uh, talking to myself. And yeah. thankfully, uh, everybody here in front of me, had, you know, their eyes haven't rolled back in their, in their heads and, you know, passed out on the floor. But the day is still young. Oh, and I uh, guess you, you have a, a comment or a question. I think it's it's really something to know that God's had to swear by himself in order to um you know say that um his covenant would would be forever at forever true. He had nothing that he could do swearing by the temple wasn't something he would do because the temple was was finite. He had swear he swore he swore to his son and his son the two of them that what he said is is done. I mean, that's the end of it. End of it is. One of the key things that we've looked at so far, we looked at the red heifer, and we've seen the parallels between that on so many different aspects, and we've seen 
during the time of the snakes about the aspect of all we have to eat is this miserable food, otherwise known as daily bread. <laughs> you know, when you talk about the, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Well, yeah, Israel got the daily bread. And you rewind the, the tape a little bit in the gospel according to Yochanan there, and it talks about how the ancestors ate bread in the desert and died because they did not combine it with trust. And we are seeing actually an example of that in our passage, our Torah passage here today, about combining this trust in God with what is received. In that case, talking about the daily bread. Now, this is talking about water. You're in the middle of the wilderness. Bimidbar, you're in the wilderness. And you need water. You don't have water. The Lord provides water. And in the midst of this, then you have the complaining. The complaining about, you led us out here. You led us, whether you're talking about Moshe, whether you're talking about Moshe, Moshe's boss, led us out into a place where there's no water to die. It's the, kind of the key thing you often hear people will say about the Garden of Eden. So what did God specifically put the first couple there in the garden to fail? They lead them out into the wilderness to die. Lead Israel out into the wilderness to die. Taking them out of the house of bondage. Took down the army of a superpower. Conquered the sea. And we've in times past, we talked about what the ancient peoples of Canaan thought about the sea and the sea monster. And that you have the God of Israel showed he is stronger than any supposed great power. Greater than Baal, which is supposed to have conquered the sea monster only by forming an alliance. Talked about that in times past that there is the ancient um, fable about that. But with the crossing of the sea, the Lord proved, whoa, far more powerful than the army of Mitzrayim, far more powerful than Baal, who supposedly had to, you know, join forces with the sea monster to be able to do anything to conquer that. And now you see here, leading out into the wilderness, and where's the water? So in Exodus, you, it's uh, packaged there together. The account of Exodus 16 is talking about the beginning of what? The daily bread. Exodus 17, what is that talking about? The water. And you probably say the daily water too because you know, if you need water far more often than you need food, even though with coming up in Yom Kippur, you may think that you're going to uh, not make it through the day. But in reality, you can make it through quite a few days without food. But without water, after at least three days, you're pretty much toast. So you've got daily food, you've got daily water. And the talked about in times past about this rock traveling around with them. And the, I talked a little bit here about in John chapter 7, where Yeshua gets up during the 
water pouring ceremony during the festival of Sukkot or Tabernacles. And it's like, oh, whoever wants water, come and drink. And this is during the ceremony where you were praying for the provision of heaven for the season to come. Or you were praying for the rains to come. I mean, right now here, we're in the midst of a drought. And a drought that has persisted over a couple of years now so far, where the rains that should have come to set things up for the season that was coming after didn't come as much as they should have. So thus, we are getting thirstier and thirstier in, in total. So that picture is something that connects people with the land. I mean, suddenly... When we are in a situation like this and we're running out of water, suddenly now people start realizing, oh, wow, we just don't turn on the, the faucet and it creates water. Water actually comes from somewhere. Yeah, even if it comes to us in a bottle, it, the company that put it in the bottle didn't make the water. Well, I suppose you can make water, but yeah, it's really costly and expensive to you know, get the, uh, the gases together and combine them to actually make water. And uh, I suppose you can make water out of your fuel cell. I don't know if I'd drink that, but uh, uh, yes, that's, that's another matter. But the water that comes amply through to enough to irrigate fields and make other things green, uh, that's is something that man is completely dependent upon God for. So, we've talked, so you get this interesting picture that we have going on here about the red heifer and the connections between the red heifer, Day of Atonement, the ultimate atonement with the Mashiach. We got the picture with the rock and the, the true rock, you know, which is why during the the ancient prayers, you have the praying for the rock of ages or the, the tzur that is the sure source, that rock you can depend upon, that this rock that also springs forth water. And as the Apostle Paul talks about this water, this rock that traveled with them is the source of true water, as Yeshua told the woman from Samaria, that this true water is something that will slake your thirst, the thirst that everyone has for, you know, what is the meaning of life? When you get to your, quote, midlife crisis, unquote, and you figure out, well, have I just blown my whole life away doing absolutely nothing? You know, what, what do I do? Some people try to salve that by, um, with stuff, getting flashier this, flashier that, uh, over overhauling their look the way they look maybe going after a new job you know their their wife of their youth suddenly isn't good enough anymore then they start shopping around for a newer model so to speak thinking well okay i've wasted all my time with what i have been given thirsting 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 and not looking at what has actually been given. Actually looking at our daily bread. Looking at our daily water that is being provided for. So as we move over into chapter 21. 
snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Oh, Pamela. Yes. Yeah. I would like to say something about Miriam died, and Moses and Aaron were feeling the loss of their sister, and these guys are still resenting them. There is no compassion for his, their, the loss that Moses and Aaron have just suffered. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a great point. They, they um, wish that they could have died at the same time that the rebels died, um, <laughs> who God punished. They don't see it as something that uh, God made, and, and they're resenting they're still at, at a time of grief for uh, Aaron and Moses. Yeah. Well, we saw that also with the the passage uh, last week too. S- same thing happened with um, what they were praying for those with the uh, Korach, Korach and his rebellion that they interceded and you know then sent Aharon forth to stop the plague that was coming against them. So, yeah, you, you bring up a very good point. <laughs> Still, yeah, we, we, we never lose out on opportunities to complain, do we? And what is complaining? What are some of the good sources of com- complaining? Pointing fingers, yes. Somebody else's fault, yes. I wouldn't be in this mess if it wasn't for blah, blah, blah. And why did this happen? Things are just happening. This person doesn't do this. This person doesn't do that. You know, versus looking, okay, what do you have and what have you actually done? Maybe the situation is coming because of something that we have done. And the, what we have is actually tends to be pretty good. That's something. Uh-oh, yes. The pointing, pointing the, the finger of accusation and all the fingers pointing right back at yourself. Yes. <laughs> yes. One pointing out, three pointing back at you. Yeah. Yes. And that's... Yeah, you, you point a very interesting point because one of the things that we have today is a um, a thing of how would you say it's a talk about a pandemic. Well, we're we've been going through a pandemic of envy and a pandemic of coveting for quite a long time, and that has taken its root in lots of different ideologies. And one in particular that's gaining a lot of strength these days is related to socialism, which on its face, you could say, is a noble ideal. The idea that you, you lift everybody up by sharing everything amongst everyone. Okay, that is a good idea. But then, you know, it's what the, they, they say that... Um, it's often credited, I'm trying to remember if it's Sun Tzu or not, in The Art of War, we're saying that uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Or as Mike Tyson puts it, you know, everybody has a plan until he's punched in the face. 
So, <laughs> yes, I like that one better. <laughs> Everyone has a plan until he's punched in the face. And that, and that ser- seriously is what you, what you go up with. This idea of sharing everything alike has run up against being punched in the face uh, quite a lot in history. And we've seen it here with the, when the pilgrims and they're at Plymouth, they ran into that as well. They started out with the ideal hoping to recreate the, the, uh, the early apostles, the early believers. You know, everybody had everything in common when they were there in Yerushalayim. Well, the problem was is that they quickly ran into something that the Apostle Paul talks about in his letters. Eh? If you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> they eventually had to get to that because there were people who just were not working. And that is where uh, it falls down quite often. Because in the battle between the kingdom of life and the kingdom of death, one of the things of the problem of the kingdom of death is something that comes up a lot in the book of Proverbs. You know, it's talked about the sloth, the slothful man, the lazy man. You know, as uh, there's uh, one, uh, one rabbi, Daniel Lappin, always talks about is He talks about spiritual gravity. I, I like that idea. Or spiritual inertia is another way to put that. It's like, it's your, um, you know, if you were to state this as a, as a great law of motion, you know, a lazy man, what is it? A lazy man stays at rest um, and tries not to move as much as possible. That is, I guess, the law of spiritual inertia. So the, <laughs> the, the energy required to get the lazy man moving is quite considerable. So <laughs> I, I know that from my experience. I'm thinking that, wow, I can sit on the couch or I can go out with the reciprocating saw and saw down the shed in the backyard in 90-degree heat. Hmm, let's see. Uh, which one do I want to go with? Uh, <laughs> yes, the couch. Man, the gravitational pull of the couch is quite strong. It's amazing. But that is, that is you know, people call it human nature. Well, that's the kingdom of death. That attitude leads toward death. If one person does it, yeah, it drags you down. If you, if you do it in your family, it drags the family down. If you do it in your community, it drags the community down. If you drag it in your nation, it drags the nation down. You know, we're going to be getting at here soon talking about, um, we talked about the conquering of the kingdoms of Sihon and Og, but then we're going to soon talk about how the tribes are going to go into the land. And one of the key things is that for those tribes that had a portion, a toehold, in the east of the Yardan, east of the Jordan River, would they contribute to what was going to happen west of the Jordan River to actually go into the land or not? Or would the gravitational pull of their property there on the east side be very strong to not want to go into the west side where it was going to be a a slog but it was going to be a slog that just like we talked about with the seven sprinklings of the red heifer and with Yom Kippur that this was a surety because what did the Lord say he is going to bring you into the land but you are going to have to go in it is going to be scary the people are going to be tall the walls are going to be tall they're going to be thick. 
They're going to have various arms and this and that, but who is actually going to win? The one where the creator of heaven and earth is on the side of. The one where he is going to tip the scales toward success. And that is something that you can take to the bank. It is going to be true. So, with this, here in Numbers chapter 21, here with the snakes, this bite of the fiery serpents, and then that is healed by this, um, this blood red, this copper brass snake that's on a pole, that you look to that, and then that is going to bring you life. Not because of the snake, but because of your looking past yourself, which is... Part of the problem that the snakes came from to begin with, but we'll get to that in a bit. And you see that, well, then you have, that is the, the call part. Well, the Homer part, the how much more part, is that the head of that, quote, fiery, the, the one who causes the burning through, the causes the pain, the agony of society and all of mankind down from the garden, down from the Garden of Eden, that that head of that serpent would be crushed and would be crushed by the second man. So the first man there in the garden parlayed with the, with the serpent and succumbed, but the second man was going to crush the head of the serpent. So, Moving on this with just a little recap on the Hebrew wordplay that we have here about um, translated serpent or copper or brass. And the bronze serpent was, was made from, when in, described in, um, in Hebrew as nechoshet or copper. And copper, as we talked about with the uh, furniture in the tabernacle when we were going through Vayikra Leviticus, talking about the, the outer court area and the things that were made of brass or copper, so the reddish in color. So thus, you've got that association of red with blood, with life, with that which is temporary or, or fleeting. And the serpent with his, uh, from the Hebrew word of nachash, and nachash is thought to come from uh, the verb nachash, which means to hiss or used in the context of incant incantation of a, a spell. So you could think of that as the idea of something sinister to incant a spell is to speak like a snake. And then the seraphim that we have with this is from the word uh, saraf, which means to set on fire. So, we talk about the seraphim being the fiery ones, the things that set on fire, the things that, and, you know, if you've ever been stung, I've never been bitten by a venomous snake, but been stung by, like, a bullet wasp, and wow, that's bad. I don't know if you've ever had a bullet wasp sting, but it earns the name bullet, uh, I would not want to encounter a bullet, but wow, the bullet wasp was bad enough. It is a piercing, burning pain as, as the poison goes in through your tissues and sets all your nerves alight and lights them all up. So, 
A very interesting point that was uh, brought out by uh, somewhat of a modern commentator of uh, Shimson Raphael Hirsch noted that the Hebrew form of the a word sent there in uh, 21 verse 6 of Yeshelach is the PL stem or the, uh, the it's kind of fun in, in uh, Hebrew grammar about the various verb stems. It's more like the um, not quite passive, but tends toward passive voice that we have in English. And that's the PL stem of uh, Shalach. Now we've talked about Shalach with the Shalachim or the sent ones. So you've got the idea of the spies. The spies were sent out. They were saying, go, go into the land, spy it out. But the PL stem is more of this. The Yeshalach is more in the sense of let, let them release them. Not sending them, but just not stopping them. That's more of the sense of what uh, Yeshalach is. And this is a... A commentary from uh, the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, which, again, shameless commercial here. If you're looking for a pretty accessible lexicon that will help you kind of see how Hebrew words are used throughout the whole Tanakh or the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament is an accessible. It's actually in English. Um, some of these lexicons are mostly in some foreign script, so they can be quite dense to try to figure out. But the theological word book is at least in a narrative to kind of show you how it's used throughout the word and how it uh, comes into, um, you can sort of piece together some of the meanings. So this passage here talking about uh, shalach, the third meaning of the verb shalach is to, to let loose or to free is also found mostly in the PL stem of Hebrew. Uh, it is used in the, in the mild sense of formally allowing a guest to leave. And the cite examples there in Genesis chapter 8, verse 16, and verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 54. Or in the stronger sense of releasing captives, such as Israel and Egypt. An example of that is Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. Or the exiles in Babylon from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 13. And the prisoners from the pit, and reference there is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11. But this is a key point. In Psalm 80, 81, verse 12, God gives rebellious Israel up to go their own way and to suffer the consequences. So that's kind of an interesting look, and there's an example of something that we're looking at here. So one of the ideas that's explored in this particular point is that you're looking at this in a situation that is like the fiery serpents are just let go. Not necessarily sent, but just let go. And this particular commentator, Hirsch, uh, points out something that you see elsewhere. And this is in particular in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So if you just turn over there, Deuteronomy chapter 8 getting there in a few weeks but this is a preview of coming attractions it's got one of one of the the great passages uh in this particular point all the commandments that i'm commanding you today you shall 
be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your hearts that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land that flows with brooks of water, fountains of springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive and honey, a land where you will eat without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then in your heart you become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Mitzrayim out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that you might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you might say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he spoke, swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if it will come about that you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you will perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. So there you go. That's a, a good this reminder here in particular that we're looking at in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is for the second generation. So second generation, getting ready to enter into the land, the land of promise. So you get that picture back there in verse 15. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. So and then he brought the manna, the bread. So you get this picture, it's like, Okay, there were these things in the wilderness, but the Lord kept them back. But there were times where, like what the passage we're looking at, Numbers chapter 21, he let them loose. He set the scorpions and the snakes free. And so, 
they did what scorpions and snakes did. Because remember, were they like in RVs, rolling around, nice, tightly sealed RVs? Yeah. They were uh, in shelters, tents at best. And not like tents like today where you zip them up and unless you have a hole in them, you can be sure that there is no critters coming in unless they chew their way in. Nope. You're the old style tents. Lots of ways in. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, today we return the tents that have lots of ways in. Well, back then they had tents with lots of ways in. So the only way that they did not have things that were coming in on a regular basis was because the creator of all those things that came in kept them out, did not let them go in. But in this point, in Numbers 20, you're like, okay, you don't need me? Well, here you go. This is what a world without God is like. Good luck there in the wilderness with all the scorpions and snakes. So, that is one of the great lessons that we have in here. So, if you take this lesson of the fiery snakes coming in, biting everybody, and it's like, okay, you've put the standard up on the pole. So, thus, when you get down into this, um, hmm, that's a nice place. Punchline here of John chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moshe lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Or that the inevitability of snakes doing what snakes do would be stopped. So that we would be freed from the kingdom of death, from the kingdom of the snake. That that would be removed and we would be given the new life without the realm of the realm of death and that when we are bitten by the kingdom of death that which seeds nothing but death that heaven will count us as like okay you've never been bitten we don't remember this anymore we don't hold that against you you have a new life so Move on into the life that is free from the bite of the serpent. So it's, a, it, it's an interesting picture because we got the, the uh, serpent up on the pole being like, okay, this is the way that you are, uh, you look to that and you trust that the one who makes the snakes can take away the snakes can take away the scourge of the poison that is going to kill you. It's a very interesting picture because when we were going through in our Bible study here recently about the book of Ezekiel and what is around the throne. The seraphim, 
the fiery, they don't get much of a description of them, but this is what they're described as, as the, this power, this power of God that can take people out. It is the fiery punishment. But what is the ultimate goal of the kingdom of heaven? To save, to build up. But just like with our immune system, that our immune system does have to go and take out the parts of our body that are sick or infected. There are cells that just, sorry, they just have to die. So that is what the task of parts of our immune system are, is to take out those parts of our body that are dying, to make them die. Well then, how much more then is the kingdom of heaven have to take out those parts that are bringing the whole body down? But the key parts of the kingdom of heaven, that is the how much more part, is that the kingdom of heaven can take the infected cells, so to speak, meaning us, and remove the infection from us without, as they say, killing the host. We don't have to die. We can be moved from being infected with a contagion, moved over into never have, having had any sign of a contagion before. That is the great promise that heaven gives us. So in the end, kingdom of death, kingdom of life. Thus, you get the great call at the end, choose life. Should be the obvious choice, but not always obvious. Because one of the things that death is, the kingdom of death is very attractive. You wouldn't think it would be, but it is. The things that are destructive, the things that are revolutionary, the things that are new and earth-shattering are very attractive. But then you always have to ask, where is this going? What is the ultimate end of this? Because if you look down to the ultimate end of this, as people would say, Oh, you're just talking about the slippery slope. Well, yes. The slippery slope is based upon the principle of spiritual gravity, meaning that a schlub in motion will continue in motion down the slope. Why? Because there's nothing to stop the schlub from going down the slope. Because people say, oh, well, you know, what are you talking about the, the, the slippery slope idea? Well, it's based upon the idea that there is a spiritual gravity in the world that will drag people down. And if you do not do anything against that, what happens? It will just keep going down. That's one of the great witnesses that we have to our creator because in this world, everything degrades down. It's a part of what our whole digestive tract is to break things down based on that very principle. But God has created life to fight against that, to rebuild, to sustain, 
to multiply, to grow. Fighting against that. So you have a principle in the things that God has made that is completely counter-material, counter-gravity, counter, uh, counter-spiritual gravity, so to speak. Going against that. To say, no, you don't have to slide downhill. But if you do nothing, yeah, you're likely, you know, a schlub in motion will stay in motion until he hits the bottom. <laughs> oh, yay. So that's one of the good news parts of our passage here today is that we don't have to be caught up in the slide, the downhill slide. But the downhill slide will happen if you let it. The point is to see it happening and then choose life. Choose the way that is not the downhill slide. Not is the way that tears down rather than builds up. Any uh, last thoughts as we close out things here today? Okay, Dave. Well, we'll close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us your words and for giving us your spirit. And Father, we just ask that you continually remind us to choose life. We thank you for giving us the great promise of a new life, a new life with you, and that you've made that way possible through your Son. Father, we thank you for covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities with his blood. We thank you for giving us new life through your spirit. We thank you for all these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.